Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 57 of Swimming Upstream on the Fans First Sports Network. We got a good show for you guys today. This is going to be a fun one. Uh, Coming out of the winter meetings, some news for the Marlins, not much, but some uh, mostly related to prospects. That's what we love to talk about on Swimming Upstream, prospects, right? We've got a good crowd here today to do so with an awesome guest. Myself, Alex Carver, Kevin Barral, managing editor of Fish on First, Eli Sussman, and Baseball America editor-in-chief, JJ Cooper. Wow, JJ, it's probably I know you guys are always busy at Baseball America, but I know you're super busy or were super busy this week with winter meeting stuff, probably calming down from that, right? So we appreciate you taking some time out to come in and chat about our beloved Marlins prospects. So again, thanks for your time and everything you do for Baseball America. It's a great resource for all of us. So we appreciate your time here on the show today. What's up? How was Nashville? How are you doing? It's great. Uh, I'm doing great. It's great to be back. But Nashville was the Opryland. The if if you've never been to the Gaylord Opryland, it's something that's kind of hard to fully explain. Like I was trying to my 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 mother's birthday always falls during. It seems to always fall during the winter meetings. And I was trying to explain to her where I was, and I was like, "There's a river in here." And she's like, "You mean like a little water?" And I'm like, "No, I mean like you can get on a boat." and go around this little river like and four people can be on that boat she's like what and i'm like and there's like it's i I can't explain there's log rides and there's bridges and there's three thousand hotel rooms and you're always lost but at the same time i i have to say from a baseball america perspective we always have had the rule five draft at the winter meetings it's really fun adding the draft lottery to it as well has been a nice little uh bonus uh, event that was very fun as well to see, and obviously a shocking one this year where you have two teams who weren't to have you know heavy odds in the Guardians and Reds both uh, getting the top two picks. So a lot of fun, and, but it is good to be home at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Our guy Isaac went; he had similar sentiments. So uh, yeah, we'll break into it, man. I'm going to recap winter meetings a little bit, Rule Five stuff, which we know is your your forte a lot you were there on site for it as well um and then we'll break into just some some uh generic um marlins prospect questions coming out of last year going into next year stuff like that uh, so let's let's go let's break into it um kind of switch off and uh hit you with the questions that we got um 
Again, you mentioned it already, Rule 5. Um, let's talk about this major league portion of the Rule 5. The Marlins do lose one prospect. Um, they did not lose the one that Marlins fans and all of us thought that they would lose in Troy Johnston. So my first question for you is about Troy, uh, a lefty hitter, 27 years old, um, you know, struggled, you know, two years ago. But this past year he was he was struggled last year or two years ago in AAA, I should say. Uh, this year he was back there for basically half of the year, played double and triple. And, man, this guy was one of the best prospects in the Marlins system. Um, WRC plus over 130. Um, 2020 season, which was the first time in a while that a Marlins prospect has done that, is defensively limited. But we figured that um, some team would take a chance on Troy's bat on their 26-man roster. They don't. Um, instead, he stays with the Marlins, which we're all thrilled about. But what are your thoughts about, about Johnston as a prospect? Is there a reason that we're not thinking of that a team didn't take a chance on him? I think you hit on one, which is he is defensively limited, and that does kind of create a, a little bit of an issue right there, right? Okay, so I'm only interested, the best way I can put it, is if I'm a team who is going to, that Johnson's going to come in and play regularly at first base slash DH, because other than that, he's not in. If I If that's not something I need, I'm not interested. Okay, so 15 to 20 teams, just take them off the, the list right away. The next part is, is that as good as his season was, he will, he sometimes will chase out of the zone. And I do think that that is a concern when you say, okay, how well is this going to translate? Because realistically, what you are talking about is we want to a first baseman, we're drafting a first baseman in the rule five draft. You're going to want a guy who's really controlled the zone pretty well, who from day one is kind of hitting and not that Johnston doesn't have a lot of attributes that kind of indicate that maybe he can, but you have this kind of this one concern here of like, okay, if he's going to chase outside of the zone too much, that might right there have said, okay, another list of teams says, nope, we're just not interested because he'll expand a little bit beyond the zone. Sometimes I, I there were two guys who were, you know, in this group, I would say that Johnston and then Blaine Krim with the Rangers were both guys who I thought, you know, had upper level track record of success and you could see them as, as guys, but first base is just not a position that always gets taken. Like there are guys who get taken Ryan Noda last year would obviously be a pre premium example, but you're pretty much only taking that guy. If he's going to not only stick, but get regular at bats. You're saying, okay, we project him to get 400 plus plate appearances if healthy. I, and apparently enough teams just looked at it and said, no, we're not willing to go there for Johnson. The other name that you mentioned that, that Alex mentioned here real quick, JJ, was Nassim Nunez, who was, I believe, the fifth pick of the draft. He went to the Washington Nationals. I think definitely more of a you know a weird selection there. He goes to a spot where CJ Abrams is a shortstop, a fairly young team, you know. Maybe a little hard to see him stick up there at the at the major league level, but just your thoughts on you know the selection and where do you see Nassim kind of projecting into this Washington Nationals team now? I think that this is actually he's got a decent chance to stick. Like you said, it's a young team that's not looking to contend this year in a very 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 uh, difficult division, as you all know uh, very well. But the thing about it is, is is that. Unlike Johnson, we talk about Johnson. Johnson's got to hit. Johnson's got to play. You know, if Johnson does in and in with a year with 400, 450 plate appearances at least, it's like, well, then why did you take him? In Nunez's case, it's not that. 
you are talking here about a case of a player who can be a 26th player, you know, a 13th position player on the roster, right? Where you say, okay, we know that his bat is not ready for the big leagues and we don't expect anything from his bat this year. He's not going to play. You, you can very easily finish the year with 200 or fewer, or fewer plate appearances and stick up there all year. But what you're saying is, is, okay, what can he do to stick to help a team? The glove is the glove, right? Like his glove is good enough that, yes, they do have C.J. Abrams, but I, I think Nunez is, is better defensively. But I think more importantly than that, Nunez could also, okay, whatever position around the infield you want to put him at, he knows he comes into spring training. If you said, what is my path to sticking? What is my path to being a big leaguer for the entirety of 2024? The simple and easy answer is have a great glove anywhere and be able to play anywhere. Second, short, third, wherever you want me to play, I can play it and I'll give you good defense. Pitch, line drive caught by Nunez. Nunez, the shortstop, a full extension leap to his right to snare a liner off the bat of Rodriguez. One pitch, one out. And on top of that, show that you can provide some value as a pinch runner. I can steal a base if you need to, or you just put me on, you know, I pinch run for the catcher and he's standing on second and I'm going to get home on a sink, you know, things that where it's like, okay, I'm providing these secondary skills while we understand I'm not going to come close to probably producing enough offensively to really count on me. He can do that. And it's the Nationals where they can say, okay, we can carry him to do that this year. And then we can probably, and I let me be clear, I think this often doesn't work, but there's often this idea, we'll carry him like that for one year. We'll send him back to the minors after that to then see if his back can kind of take that next step. And then we'll check back on him in 2026 and see if he can be a, a regular or a, a more... Um, a more well-rounded backup, uh, you know, infielder. And it's possible that he can get there. I did hear like he was a guy who coming into the draft, I more and more like the last couple, you know, last hour or two before it, I was hearing Nunez's name, like, okay, where do you think he's going to go? Not, do you think he's going to go? Where do you think he's going to go? And that really is testament that, the thing, the credit to him is, is there are not often shortstops with this kind of glove who are available in the Rule 5 draft, even if I would still put there a pretty good chance that he ends up back with the Marlins because at the end of the day, even if you're a team that's not trying to be particularly competitive, it's hard to get through your, it's hard to carry anyone on your roster who you really can't count on anything offensively from. And I don't think, you can count on much of anything from Nunez defend offensively in 2024. But JJ, you touched on it, the idea that this is unusual for a defend, defender like him to be available. What do you make of the, the fact that him and Johnston were even unprotected in the first place? As we'll get into a little bit later, this Marlins farm system is not in good shape right now. So these guys, I, I think on, on BA, you had Nassim as the number six prospect in the whole mm -hmm. organization as of like a month ago. Yeah, where do you stand on that? Even if it's a team that has, you know, some motivation to win quickly, uh, it's it leaves them with very little prospect capital to deal with, and they're a team that has a big void at shortstop in the near future. Were you surprised that he wasn't protected in the first place? A, a, 
A little bit, but I think you also have to factor in the kind of front office changeover that we've had in, you know, in Miami in the last couple of years where even though Nunez isn't very old, even though Nunez was drafted not that long ago, we're still talking about that there's been a lot of changeover where the, the evaluations may be a little different now than they were, you know, when he was taken. I, you're right. They, the, the, the Marlins need shortstops, and it is kind of strange in some ways to say, and we're going to leave this one unprotected. But at the same time, I don't think that Nunez had a ton of, like as far as prospect capital, Nunez would have needed a significantly better 2024 season to really have a ton of prospect capital. The fact that he was Rule 5 eligible, and he didn't get picked, but he wasn't the first pick in the Rule 5 draft either, right? Like So there is kind of a... You know, he's valuable. We're not saying he's not, but at the same time, we're not talking about a guy who it's like, okay, the cornerstone of this deal is, is we will give you Nassim Nunez because if that was the case and we, this doesn't really happen, but he would have been the first pick in the rule five draft without a question. Because if you're talking about someone who's a clear talent, they're going to be like, Teams are going to be falling over each other like, hey, Oakland, we'll trade you so-and-so if you can give us. And that's not where Nunez is. So I think a lot of this comes down to, yes, I don't think that the Marlins farm system right now is in uh, ideal shape for where you want it to be. This speaks to that. Um, but it also speaks to, it's like, okay, the, the new regime does have some work to do on this. Um, I do think you give a lot of credit to Kimming and, and kind of the, the previous front office for what they did to get to the playoffs. But as Peter Bendix and the, the new regime come in, there's also going to be a lot of work because it's hard. The Marlins aren't going to outspend anybody, especially in a division where we know that the Phillies and the Braves are going to spend and the Mets. And then you look at it farm system wise, and this is not a team right now that, is you say okay, there's seven, eight, you know, players coming that's really going to shoot them up, you know, give them a chance to have this great young core. They do have a good young core in the big leagues, and they've shown that they can develop pitching, which is very valuable. But that said, it, it's going to have to be some creative moves to fill some of these holes on the big league club because I don't see those answers necessarily coming in the next year or so from the farm system. Yeah, absolutely. Top five system just a few years ago, and. Ain't that way anymore, unfortunately, but hopefully we can get built back up. Um, I guess finishing out on the Rule 5, uh, JJ, the, Mar the Marlins didn't pick anybody with their major league. In the major league portion, they passed. Um, that's kind of a raised staple, especially in, in many recent years, so it wasn't really a surprise to see Bendix there back end of the draft passing. Uh, but they did get five guys in the minor league portion. Um, they get uh, the young outfielder, uh, Ural Martinez, uh, they get Marty Costas, an outfielder as well. They get Sean Roby, third baseman and pitchers, Adam Lasky and Julio DeLone. Uh, so we were kind of talking about these guys uh, a little bit ago earlier in the week. Um, but is there any one of these guys that maybe sticks out to you as um, as a prospect who could uh, make an impact with the Marlins system here before long? I, I don't want to go overboard on these because of the reality of it is, is that they're, they're minor league rule five picks. You usually, if you get a decent org player out of it, then you've done a, a, a nice uh, minor league pick. That said, you know, Marty Costas was a guy a couple of years ago coming out of Maryland. I 
that was intriguing to some extent. Um, I'm kind of, I'll be interested to see what, you know, kind of what he can do, change of scenery. Uh, you know, maybe there's something there. There was a time where I, Adam Lasky was a little interesting to me, you know, again, coming out of the draft and all that. I would say if you bet on, if again, if you're, if you're handicapping what are the success rate on a minor league rule five pick, you're, if you say they're probably going to be org players, you're you're generally going to be right. Um, there is there are exceptions to that. The Marlins have pulled off one of the biggest exceptions to that in in the 21st century in Justin Moore. But I, most of the time, the other thing you have to remember with these guys is is often these are one year trials because the way it works often, and I can't I don't have the in front of me which ones of these are the cases. But often players are minor league rule five eligible right before they become minor league free agents. So in many cases, you have one year. And if you really like them, then you're adding them to the 40 man roster next year, not just to prevent them from being available in the major league phase of rule five, but if they're in demand enough just to kind of keep to induce them to not try to, you know, free agency, minor league free agency. So again, I, but those are a couple of guys who, when they, when the name, when I heard the names, I was like, oh, okay. You know, we, I don't think any of them made our nine guys that we were kind of highlighting from the minor league uh, phase of the rule five draft. But those are some, some definite useful names that again, you're, you're looking for, if you can hit on one out of every 20 minor league rule five picks you do, you're doing a good job. But at the same time, I also, I, m to be honest, major league teams get more excited about the minor league phase a lot than in the major league phase because it's basically free talent. They love the idea of there's not this 40 man roster requirement. There's not this, I got to carry him on the major. Like it's 24 K and that he's just our player. Well, teams love that. Even if this year was a little thinner that way because of the five round draft in 2020, which we're seeing the effects of now here four years later. JJ, I wanted to ask you, obviously we know that the, the Marlins, you know, develop, draft talent they, they struggled at that for the for a couple of years now so i guess with the front office kind of being constructed obviously we see kim leave we see bendix come in bringing a couple of his own guys here how important is that the that the marlins brought in as many names you know we see gabe kapler i know they brought in obviously the big one bendix and a couple other guys to to have that player development how important is that that they brought these type of names with you know most notably bendix but then kapler who was with the dodgers and we saw what he did with that minor league system I, I, again, I, I think that that really was kind of a clever hire from the standpoint of you don't often see Gabe Kapler is kind of an unconventional guy. I mean, like just in general, I, I think you could say that, but you, you look at his career path, there aren't a whole lot of, you know, man, major league managers who kind of head back into this role, but he's uniquely kind of equipped to do that because this is something he's done well before. Um, this is something where, if you said pick an organization, like, let's just be honest about it. If you wanted to say, okay, from a player development perspective, pick organizations that you are going to try to uh, take away talent from, take away their kind of their 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 background, their intellectual, their what's held in their head, heads because they worked in these organizations. Dodgers and Rays are pretty hard to beat from a player development perspective. The Dodgers are pretty hard to beat from almost any perspective, to be honest. Um, but to have that kind of combination, 
Bendix, you know, Peter is coming from the Rays. He's been with the Rays for quite a while. He's been involved in different aspects of it where that's been a pretty perennially powerful uh, farm system. They have to be, um, even though the one thing I'll say about them is, is everyone talks about the Rays prospects, what the Rays do as much on the prospect side, and this is player development as well, but it's the volume of trades that they make as much as it is the draft. They've drafted well at times and all that good international program, but it's just time on time again, where we have players like junior Camonero and you say, well, where did he come from? It's like, well, actually he was a guardian and then they traded Tobias Myers for them. And then junior Camonero turns into junior Camonero. So you have that, you have Kapler. It is important because that's where, if the Marlins are going to have long-term success, I, I think we all know it has to come from within and then from trading within and winning on those trades. Now, I feel like that if you look at last year, they did a very good job on the trade front as far as winning some of those trades, at least in the short term, adding players who really did help them become a playoff team, which, okay, that to me is very important if you're talking about the Marlins. The Marlins have not had a whole lot of seasons take that 2020-60 game you know, season out of it. There just haven't been that many, I mean, that many times where, where Miami has, you know, where the Marlins have had the opportunity to be in the playoffs. Well, okay. Getting there is great. Now you want to kind of sustain that that's going to be even more challenging. And that's where every aspect, every prong of player development, talent acquisition is going to have to be firing on all cylinders. For sure. Uh, sticking with the front office for a second, JJ, um, one departure that the Marlins had for a position that they've still not filled is uh, director of amateur scouting. So they parted ways with DJ Svalik. Um, Bendix was asked about this in Nashville this past week. Uh, he kind of spoke to, like the intricacies of the role, how important the role is, how important it is to get the right person in that role, ETC, ETC. Um, looking back on the tenure of DJ, though, uh, I just wanted to ask you about his overall draft strategy of always selecting the best player available. Um, that was his, his, his MO, um, in some ways it worked specifically with pitching, but with position players, it didn't really work out for him in most of his drafts. So I just wanted to ask you about that strategy when it comes to the draft, is that a viable strategy to just go best player available? Or do you think like the best directors sometimes go against that grain? I think that it depends on what you're defining as best player available. I, I do believe that generally scouting directors who, you know, take who's best on their board. But at the same time, there are differences of opinions on the board. And this is also something that gets into how well, like every scouting director now, part of the job is, is okay, there's multiple prongs to it. But one is, how do we marry our model? Because almost everyone in some way has some sort of model to try to bring rationality to a very difficult process to put your arms fully around. You have that. You also have, okay, how are we going to put together the, the jigsaw puzzle of how much money we have to spend, how much we're going to, uh, are we going to go, are we going to spread that around? Are we going to put that, you know, largely into a couple of players? So there's that decision to be made. And then there's kind of that decision of how many voices do you have in the room? How many voices do you have who have real pull in this? Is that, is this going to be a GM decision? Is it going to be an, a scouting director decision? Is it going to be more? of a consensus decision, um, you know, and that's something that I don't even know that they're, you know, these don't necessarily have right answers. Any one of these ways 
can work and any one of these ways can fail. The thing that has like that, I, again, I think you can be honest about it with the, with the Marlins is, is when it comes to position players at the top of the draft, when they've drafted position players at the top of the draft in recent years, it has not worked out. And the thing that is hard to fully explain about that is like, I don't think that there's any one overriding thing. I'm not going to, I can't say like, I think that the Marlins figured out pretty quickly after they had Connor Scott, that Connor Scott was not the next Kyle Tucker. I know they went to the same school and all that, but they kind of figured out pretty quickly. Oh, okay. This isn't nearly as impactful. JJ Blade, that's one where I do kind of scratch my head a little bit because they took a player from one of the safest, and not and there's it's a draft, nothing's safe. But to take a incredibly productive SEC outfielder from Vanderbilt, not a guarantee, but at the same time, that's something where you generally feel like, okay, as much as we can mitigate risk by relying on track record, relying on a very long track record of a player. But they had some of those aspects and it, it didn't work out. And to be honest, I, I think that there are similar fears with Jacob Berry now. And that one is one where it's like, okay, this, that wasn't some crazy off the board pick. That was a, uh, Jacob Berry was on near the top of many teams draft boards. And the, the question comes with that is, is, and again, I don't have an answer for this. I don't know if the Marlins have an answer for this, which is okay. Were they the wrong picks? Were they, you know, have they have they struggled to develop them? Have it connected the right way as far as from a development? Yes to all of the above, but that is something where it, you know, it is difficult to explain on some of those. I mean, obviously, Khalil Watson's already been traded, so that's another. Yeah. But the Marlins, I, to their credit, the Marlins kind of have a track record, which is both good and bad. Which is when they realize that they have a first round pick that is probably a, the trade value of them is declining year by year. They don't hold on to them. Going back to Colin Moran, you, there's other examples. like they. But at the same time, if you trade a top 15 pick in the draft within the next couple of years, very rarely is that a sign that, yeah, we feel like we really nailed it with that pick. It's kind of, unfortunately, a double-edged sword. I have heard that, you know, I've heard secondhand that the uh, – the Marlins are uh, actually interviewing people, I think, now for that scouting director job. And it will be very interesting to see in what direction they go. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think nowadays we, we talk about the it's very important that job, the amateur scouting director. At the same time, these are systems as much as they are individual people that are involved in this because it's going to be how you do your modeling. It's going to be how you what you allow your scouts, what you allow your cross checkers, what, you know, how many people above the uh, scouting director are involved in it. There's a lot that goes into uh, a draft nowadays. JJ, I do quickly want to touch up on, on Jacob Berry, because obviously he's the most recent position player that, you know, the Marlins have drafted. Just what have you noticed about him? Do you still see some hope for Jacob Berry to kind of pan out to be that guy that the Marlins drafted and you know, kind of what we saw at LSU. Do you think maybe a change to first base permanently could help him? Because we've seen him struggle at third at times, but, you know, kind of got it a little bit during the Arizona Fall League after the first couple rough stretches there. I do think he's a first baseman. I think that that 
and again, I think that's something that's kind of was known. That's that part is not a surprise in any way. Like, I don't think anyone watching him at LSU realistically thought long term that he was going to be playing somewhere higher up the defensive spectrum. That was always kind of viewed as like you were you're counting on a bat, right? The question now becomes, okay, is the bat the bat is not as good at this point? I, I feel comfortable in saying the bat is not what you hoped it would be, right? And I don't mean that as in like he can't hit the majors or anything like that, but you draft a player with the defensive questions that Barry had because you think he's going to be a well above average offensive player. You know, to see like to just take examples, I mean, Wyatt Langford went fourth overall in this past draft, right? Again, SEC, you know, productive in the case of Langford, an outfielder who's more athletic. I know it was a better draft, but Wyatt Langford. Wyatt Langford found high A to be like comically below his level of, of you know what he could play at. He go they pushed him to double A and he's like, oh, this is nice. They pushed him to triple A and he's like, yeah, this is good. I, I can handle this. That's the kind of like you see those things. You don't want to say that you make a rash judgment, a snap judgment off of you know 100 plate appearances like that. But players do show you pretty quickly some aspects of it. And the fact of it is, is that there's power. There's real power in Barry's bat, but at the same time, the swing decisions, the contact rate, the ability to get to that power all have been problematic so far. You still have hope, but at the same time, you're probably like coming out, you know, you would say like, okay, the hope is that this is an above average hitter with above average power at least, right? And now I would say if you get a average hitter with average power or you get an slightly a fringe average hitter with above average power. Like if you could on that, on that seesaw, that teeter totter of power and hit, if, if the two of them can combine to basically be fifties, right? Whatever one is like with one sixty, one's 40. If you can get a 50 average on those two from him now, I think that that would be a good outcome. And again, that's just not as impactful as kind of you're hoping for when you take a guy that high in the draft. Yep. So I wanted to ask you about the the lower levels of the minor leagues for the Marlins. Obviously, kind of feels like most of that talent, you know, most of the valuable talent for this team kind of lies in the, you know, you could say high A, Jupiter, FCL. Just what are the names that have kind of stuck out to you, you know, at the lower levels for the Marlins that you kind of think could kind of turn out to be, you know, some of the top prospects for this for this organization? So I I'll answer that a little bit with kind of a, a bigger picture thing, which I'll be interested to see if this remains the case, right? What stands out to me about the Marlins system at all levels, and um, I, I would say that this is true at AAA, but it's also true all the way down. Like, you know, you look at a guy like uh, a Javier Sanoa, you know, and, and other guys like that, is that, man, the Marlins, the Luis Arias trade at the big league level, the Xavier Edwards, the acquiring Xavier Edwards. Uh, you know, the Marlins are all about getting acquiring, signing, developing players with real significant bat to ball skills. And that's kind of one of the things that stands out to me over and over and over. Um, I, I'm gonna throw it back on you guys for a minute, if y'all don't mind, then I'll get to come some other prospects. But I want to get what you think because. I personally, and I wrote about this, like, and I'm not trying to troll anyone or anything, but like as good as Luis Arias is, and he was excellent this year, like I think that I would, I personally would rather 
acquire the Pablo Lopez in that deal than the Luis Arias because it's just so hard, especially if you are a um, a lower revenue, not a team that's not going to be spending 200 million plus. It's just so hard to get a front of the rotation starter. And I do feel like that Lopez, at least what you would say if Lopez is, is if he's starting game one or game two of a playoff series for you, you feel like you got a chance, even if you're facing a team that's like throwing a Verlander at you or whatever. But what I, I did wonder, you know, what, what you all, I got, I'm sure that you all have talked about this before, but what do you all think as far as like, I, again, Arias had a great season. Do you feel like that, that you would, as, as people cover the market, would you do that trade again now? Or is like in hindsight, you know, I would have probably preferred to hold on to Lopez. Right. It, it, to me, it is still a, incomplete a bit because the twins acted quickly and extended Lopez with the Marlins. What was clear is that they were not interested in doing that for him. Part of that being their revenue challenges, part of that being their confidence in being able to create more serviceable starters internally and lacking that confidence to create viable hitters internally. So they, I think that was the need in understanding your strengths and weaknesses as an organization was part of it. But ultimately the goal I would think would have been likewise to extend a rise uh, even because he is, he still has a couple years of control remaining, but he's still so young at this moment. He's still 26 years old. He turns 27 early next year it would look a whole lot better and I'd feel a whole lot better if he has for the next half decade, he's in Miami and that's somebody where the ceiling is a little bit more limited than, than Pablo is, but the floor is so exceptionally high just because of that contact rate that he has. 199 hits and into center down for a base hit number 200 for Luis Arrive. Honestly, at the time, one of the things I was most fixated on was the fact that the Marlins had to include multiple prospects in addition to Lopez to get that deal done. As it turns out, Jose Salas, who was somebody we were pretty high on, uh, his past season was a bit of a disaster. And, and who Bad. maybe very yeah, like I'm, I'm doing the twins list, and I don't even know. I'll probably stick him at the back of the third. Not something where I, you know, it, it's not something where I, I feel. Like he has to be on the Twins thirty this year, which just tells you how far he fell in the past season, in the past year. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Overall, it's. Um, I think regardless of what happens, it's pretty palatable. But it was because the season he just had was so special on a variety of levels. He was absolutely beloved internally. Uh, a lot of his production came in high leverage situations in a way that actually made a material difference in them making the postseason. And for them to make the postseason in a full length season for the first time in 20 years, excluding the yeah. COVID year, that was such a big accomplishment. Um, so from that standpoint, I, I wouldn't uh, uh, redo all of it. But it is it, it continues to be very fascinating because so much credit has to go to Lopez. Um, it's I think it's a little bit revisionist history for people to see him at that time as a front as a ace caliber pitcher. He seems to be stuck in terms of what to do with his breaking ball and the improvement that he made in that pitch and changing it to a sweeper and for him to create so much more swing and miss than he had even as a Marlin that that really changed it in hindsight. So the twins, no doubt are happy about it. It's with the right. Marlins, as I said, it's still kind of incomplete. It's fair to say, like, would he have had the same season in Miami? And maybe he wouldn't have. And then it becomes a different discussion. But at the same time, I and again, 
every this is true of every org, right? Like every org has guys that they seem to click with and some other guys that they don't on the pitching side. But that said, anytime that you trade someone like that, it's like, wow, they unlocked a new level for that pitcher. I think then it is also time to kind of take a little bit of a, a step back and say, okay, why weren't we able to unlock that next level at, at the same time? But to, to answer your, your, your previous question, um, Kemp Alderman is, is a guy that I've always kind of found, you know, kind of interesting. Like, I will be honest. I don't think there is not, I don't look at the Marlins lower levels right now as something that is uh, basically where I, I don't see levels where I jump out and go, oh, how are they going to figure out ways to spread the at-bats around because they have so many guys who really, you know, who need that or okay man they've got seven starters for the you know for that ro- for that level you know to fit into a rotation are they going to have to go uh are they going to tandem starter you know or, or things like that you look at where we're kind of wrapping up our uh our uh our top 30 that we'll be finishing up for the handbook and and in it we do have a number of you know more recent signees but a lot of them are more guys who's like, okay, that guy might be a reliever. Okay, that was a good international signing, but he struggled when he came to the states. There's not like a. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done here. You know, to be honest, like from the standpoint of of depth and. But the other part of it is, is like, and again, to kind of make this a conversation, like, okay, where are where are the Marlins? Like, getting to the playoffs was great, and again, that is a something well worth you know plaudits and it is kind of strange how things have happened since then that kim ang you know leads the team to their first uh play non you know full season playoff appearance in two decades and is gone soon thereafter is a you know is a very odd situation but i don't know where this team is is like okay does that mean that the goal for 24 is to build on that, which I kind of feel like I feel like expecting a playoff spot again in 24 would be pretty difficult right now. Um, or is it okay? This team that was great. Now it needs to take kind of a, a consolidation step back. But if that's the case, I don't know where I don't think 25 looks brighter than 24 right now. You kind of have, unless you're going to do a full teardown. You have a number of players who are kind of in the primes of their careers, especially, you know, you look on the pitching side, they've done a very good job. Like, okay, well, where are you going to take that? Like, is it something where this is the team that's looking to contend or this is the team that's looking to, you know, be a, an 82, 83, 84 win team. And maybe that's enough, you know, to, to kind of sneak in the playoffs or I, I don't know. With all the changeover, no, I'm not yet certain on kind of what the what it, whether it's a short term goal or a long term goal of where this team is kind of aiming. You guys have a better sense of that than I do. You know what do you, what do you all think? Yeah, the the, the losses that they've had. I mean, you lose Soler, right? Um, now next year, this after this year, you're looking at losing Bell most likely um, as well. And plus, you still have the glaring holes that we just talked about. Um, you know, catcher and shortstop being the main two um, with not much internal talent that's going to be ready in the next couple of years to draw from. I, I don't think, I mean, we're talking about prospects. We, I don't think we've mentioned many 
especially at those positions, especially with Ronald Hernandez gone. Um, you know, he's even a few years away for the Mets, but that would have been somebody, but they traded him for David Robertson. Um, you know, so again, uh, I think it was I mean, chips all in, in, uh, in 23 and 24, I think is going to be a rough year. Um, and I don't see it being a playoff contention contending team in 25 either. Honestly, JJ, I would say this is going to, they're going to need to do a lot of internal work with the, with the minor league system, honestly, in my opinion. And I mean, when you say this, like catcher and shortstop, I don't feel are particularly positions of, of strength. Like you look at catcher, I know that they, they just drafted Joe. They've, they've, they've put draft capital into it. Joe Mack, Will Banfield, but I don't think that you can comfortably say with either of them right now that that's someone that you could count on as a regular. Um, and that is an example, like, again, that's always a tricky position, right? Like, especially like when you take a guy like Will Banfield, he was glove first high school catcher. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it does, but that's a risky to say like, okay, the bat's going to develop at a very brutal position to develop is always tough. Um, so you have that. They've tried it shortstop, right? Like, I mean, you, again, draft capital is spent. Khalil Watson, I look, we were wrong on it. Like we at BA thought that was great value to get Khalil Watson where they did, but I did not foresee a, a strikeout rate where you had to kind of look at it. Did I, did I read that wrong? Look at it again. It's like, no, I read that right. Okay. And then that's, you know, before long you turn around and you're like, okay, obviously he's no longer in the organization and you look at it like those are positions. I don't know what, you know, shortstop. I is it's John birdie right now. Right. Like that would be, you know, like if, if the season began today and I don't think that's the ideal role for him. Like, I think he's a good player, but that's not the idea. They want to experience with Edwards. Apparently, according to Bendix, they want to experience with Xavier Edwards at shortstop. Um, I don't think that's going to wind up the best. I don't think he is a shortstop, but that's what Bendix is saying. But yeah, uh, there's no true shortstop is what we're saying, right? I will say when Xavier Edwards, again, I've done the raise list for a number of years. Um, in the raise organization, like obviously he was originally a Padre, but in the Rays organization, they never thought that he was an everyday shortstop. Could he play there? Okay. Yeah. But like, but if you want to get the most out of him, he's a second baseman. He's a, you could probably play him at third. He's okay at third. You could put him in the outfit if you wanted to. All those things are very possible, but shortstop is, is you're asking a lot from him. And also there's always the concern. Is it going to, detract a little bit from what he does at, uh, at other position, you know, at, at the plate, I should say, you know, if you ask him to do something like that, but again, you have to be a little creative when you don't, uh, you know, there's, I, I don't think that, uh, that, that they're going to, you know, that they're going to be signing a big free agent to come into that position either. So you're going to have to probably be a little bit creative and there's not an sure. internal answer otherwise, probably. Yeah, uh, for sure. I guess we can get to one more middle infield uh, guy that we thought was going to be good, kind of like Salas uh, and Khalil, who's no, no, no longer here. Um, we can talk about Yiddy Capé. Uh, this is a prospect who we were quite high on. Um, Marlon's signed him for good money coming out of the international draft, like close to $3 million. Uh, so that's a pretty high-priced international free agent rate. Um, and it has not been good for Capé. Uh, they threw him up in... Um, in high A this year, uh, astronomical strikeout rate, barely walked, 
Um, his largest strengths that we were, were that we know of uh, from reports that you guys do and other outlets as well uh, are bat to ball skills and contact rates. And he did not show much of that at all either. Um, so, I mean, we were talking about guys that are going to sink on your list like Salas. Um, what do you make of Capé? I mean, still very young. He's playing, you know, much older competition, especially in high A. This year he did. Um, is there still um, a way for this guy to figure it out? Yeah, there's definitely still a way for him to figure it out. He is still young, as you said. There's still some potential here. I, I do think it is kind of a little bit like, I, I think, though, he is also moving down the defensive spectrum, right? Like, I, I think at this point, you're kind of, your hope is he's a second baseman, but he also could end up being an outfielder. I, I think when it's all said and done is a possibility as well. Like, I don't think you, you know, like, the the trend is heading in the direction that you're kind of hoping it's not as far as like, well, where is this defensive home? and Obviously, you start this and you're like, okay, let's be honest. You know, every most every one of these guys, you know, most every prospect starts out at shortstop in a lot of cases, right? Like, like it's funny when we talk about international signings, amateurs, we almost have it's like a list that's like shortstop, third base, if you're a left handed hitter, outfield, or catcher, right? No one signs the second baseman, no one signs as the first baseman. Um, you Jalen Ortiz was 280 pounds. And by the way, credit to him. He's been playing at right field for many years now, but he did sign as the first baseman as a 280 pound, you know, uh, 16 year old. So when you say they signed a shortstop, it's like, okay, that means athletic throws right-handed and is athletic enough to start, you know, and then slide down the spectrum. But that said, I think that there was hope here. And it's like, you know, defensively, he's not as smooth as maybe kind of we had hoped when he signed. But I do think there's still hope there. I mean, we've we've got him sixth on our list because uh in an organization that that kind of needs guys with with upside, there is still, you know, there's still some there's still some potential for some offensive impact there. JJ, another guy I want to ask you about, one of the players that was actually protected from the Rule 5 was on Victor Mesa Jr., who kind of made a lot, has been yes. making some strides, going from one year to another, turning out to be one of the top prospects in this organization. What have you seen from him? That What are, what are I guess, the biggest improvements you've seen from someone like VMJ? And what would you say is kind of his ETA at the big league level? You know, this is a guy who maybe starts at AAA this upcoming season, gets a couple reps there, and this is a guy who you know may have a big breakout year for 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 um miami at the at the triple a level there where it's a short porch and right and you know you could kind of tap into some power there as well 2024 i think is not a crazy like end of 2024 is not a crazy eta it's middle of 2024 depending on you know kind of how things go but um to his credit like hey it, there was a time when it was hard to keep track of your your Victor your 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 Victor Mesas right you know we had your Victor Victor you know we had your and we now it's it's easier to keep track of now um, I do think that in his case like he's become a a more well rounded player than probably you know than I expected I would say I don't want to put on anyone else but than I expected that I, I think that there's just not a lot that he doesn't do reasonably well. Right, like it's not a lot of it's not a lot of sixes and sevens on the scouting report, but it's also not really many fours. Um, it's forty fives, fifties, fifty fives. There's a lot of average to above average tools here, and to his credit, he's also shown 
just year after year after year that he's um that he does have the ability to make improvements he does have the ability to add refinements and that kind of has him now on the uh on the cusp now i i don't think that he's going to be you know a perennial all-star or anything like that but i do think that he could very well the marlins let's be just honest about it the marlins have had a lot of flawed outfield prospects in recent years right players who if everything breaks right could be really good but there are always these kind of like big ifs right like peyton burdick i've liked peyton burdick for a long time but peyton burdick was always the prospect where it's like if this happens and this happens and this happens and look what you've got or jj Blade, like we got to wasn't very long into the process that we got just like okay we're probably going to have to live with some again there are threes and fours on jj Blade's card we have discovered in base's case it's kind of more of a well-rounded package where it's like okay you know credit to him uh he's it's easy to see a way that he's a a very productive useful big league even regular even if he's not a star you need players like that and i, I think that's where mesa kind of has a path to be which is is like a guy that you look back in and go okay he wasn't you know he's a two and a half war player he's not a five war player but you need to you know especially when you have rookies second year third year guys who are two and a half war players that's a really useful player yeah he was great in spring like eye popping in spring training too he's really good from the start so yeah um great year for him uh and the marlins got something out of a lot of money that they spent on both those guys or look to get some hope they got something and it looks like they very likely will as you said so um yeah um i guess we could do one more jj before we get out for the day this has been awesome okay. talking with jj cooper from baseball america um simple question to round it out man we went through a lot in this episode we went through player dev we went through drafting we went through talent that they have talent that they got rid of the final question for the show is, man, um, like we said earlier, Eli was talking about it. This was a system that was not too long ago, very highly touted for the talent that they had. Uh, some didn't work out. Some got traded. Um, since then, because of a variety of reasons, it's likely a bottom tier system in Major League Baseball, if we're being honest right now. So the question mm -hmm. is, overall, what will it take? A change in mindset, a change in drafting, a complete overhaul in player development, what is it going to take for this system to get back to where it needs to be for a team that annually doesn't have a high payroll that needs to draw from the minor leagues, kind of be the feeder system? How can Marlins get back to that state? Well, so I'll start with like the thing to give them credit. I will give them credit for is, is like, if you look back at when it was not that many years ago that the Marlins were, a, you know, very, a, a high, a top tier farm system. To their credit, I would say that they, a lot of those guys somewhat lived up to expectations, right? Like, I mean, it is something where Sixto Sanchez's shoulder injury is one of those what could have been, right? Because he showed it in the majors. He, when we talk about, you know, the first playoff appearance in a full season since, you know, in 20 years, well, they did make the playoffs and who was a key part of them making the playoffs? Sixto Sanchez. So that was 2020 in the 60 game season. And that's one of those where you do just kind of shake your head. And I got to give also credit, like credit for the Jesus Uzardo trade that they have made trades where they did a good job of kind of taking advantage of prospect fatigue 
uh, you know, a, a guy like Lizardo, who was incredibly highly regarded prospect. It had not started, you know, from the start, it did not work in Oakland when he made the majors. And they just kept, they're like, nope, we'll take them. Kudos to them. So, like, I look at, you know, you look at uh, Cabrera, you look at, you know, they've, they've had guys, I mean, Josh, you know, Josh Norris for us, uh, you know, has kind of always kind of been uh, a believer in, you know, in, in multiple uh, pitchers in the, in the Marlins system, but probably most importantly, Yuri Perez, like from the minute he saw Yuri Perez, he thought he was pretty special. And those guys, like, this is all, these are all good things that did turn out jazz Chisholm, you know, turned out, you know, these are guys where it's like, okay, what it needs though is, well, one, you can't, you're not going to hit on every draft pick and especially you're not even going to hit on every draft pick in the top 10. But that said, got to be a better success rate than what we've seen. If you have top 15 picks, you're, you want to be having a pretty high success rate with those. And that's just not been the case uh, in recent years for the Marlins. If you have a top five pick, it's really crushing. If you have a top five pick, if that top five pick turns into an okay big leaguer, not great, you can live with that. If they become someone who's not even like, uh, you know, not even a regular, that really hurts. And that's kind of, that's, that's been, uh, I think, a Marlins problem. But the other is, is kind of to go back to the, the big picture here is, is, okay, so what is the, and I think this is where the changeover, this is where you can, whether it's ownership or whatever, what is the goal here, right? Because I think that one thing that is a little bit difficult here is, 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 is the goal, is last year the goal, right? And that's, that sounds bad, but that's actually not, right? Like if you said our goal is, is that every few years we're going to make the playoffs and we believe that if we get lucky, we can beat. look, look at what the Diamondbacks did, right? The Diamondbacks were not, no one looked at the Diamondbacks during the regular season and said, man, this team is just unstoppable. They get hot at the right time. And which, by the way, this is the, you know, this is the Marlins history that drives some other fan bases, I believe, in the NL East a little bit crazy, is the Marlins are the perfect example of, look, okay, that's very nice, Braves. Congratulations. You keep going to the playoffs year after year after year after year. And, oh, yeah, by the way, you won one World Series, you know, with the, the Maddox, Glavin, Chipper, da, da, da. We won two, you know, so we're way more efficient on winning World Series with this. That, that could be a goal. If that's the goal, okay, well, then go towards that goal. If the goal is, is no, we want to be, everyone wants to be long-term sustainable success, that's really hard to do. But if the goal is, is like, look, World Series are bust, okay, then strip this back down to the studs, right? Like, I mean, it's not going to be fun for a few years, but then trade guys, you know, as they hit your three, four, five, where you can get real value for them because there's not the makings right now of a team that's going to win a World Series. It, but I kind of think that A is probably a better approach for the Marlins right now than B because B is just a lot of pain and no guarantee uh, of success in 2026. And I don't think also that the rules now are set up in a way where I think A, you might have as much chance of getting to B by trying the A approach as well of sustainable 85 wins because look, if you fall short of that a little bit, look at what just happened with the Reds, right? Like, okay, they didn't make the playoffs. They got the second pick. And 
that could next year's draft may not be the example to, to, to do this, but the twins who were in the playoffs this year got the fifth pick a year ago in a five player top tier draft. They got a guy who could be a stud at five overall. You don't have to win 55 games to do that. In fact, the A's have averaged 55 wins the last two years, and they're now guaranteed to not have a top three pick in three straight drafts. So I do think that there's a path to this. It's going to take some time. It's going to take a little bit more stability than the Marlins have had in recent years because we've essentially had now three regimes in some ways, and that's not a fault of any one person or anything except for maybe ownership from the standpoint, though, we had the Derek Jeter, and I say this regime because it was kind of Derek Jeter run the show, and then then we had Kim Ang come in, and Kim Ang, understandably, and I think this is logical and should happen, brought in some of her people, and then now Kim Ang's out, and now Peter Bendix is going to bring in some of, I would assume, his people, but the thing that happens with that is, is that's a lot of changeover. That's a lot of, you're going to have people in the Marlins, you're going to have players in the Marlins organization who have had kind of different voices and different approaches presented to them multiple times during their career. Having a little bit more stability is in the long run, potentially beneficial. Yeah. Identity of this team is still out. Uh, what are they doing long-term? Right. Uh, and what approach will they take? Going to continue to follow it on Fish on First. I'm sure JJ will follow it from the prospect side, of course, with Baseball America, with all that he does there. Guys, go subscribe to this man and all that his staff does. You can get a subscription for as low as $8.33 monthly if you subscribe for the annual subscription. It's fantastic stuff. Um, if you like prospects, if you like anything related to major league prospects, minor league prospects, guys are coming up. Top 30 lists, top 10 lists. They, they do literally everything. It's a fantastic resource. And JJ's behind it all as editor-in-chief. So, man, JJ, thank you so much for coming on today. This was awesome, just kind of going through everything. State of the system, draft, player dev, uh, who's here, who's not, rule five, everything. It was fantastic. So, again, from all of us, thank you so much, man, for your time. This was this was awesome. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Um, amazing stuff. Thank you. Again, you guys do good work. I enjoy coming on with you guys. So thank you all.